Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies and iTunes via the web. I'm your host, Nick Cheesman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm talking with Annette Mie Kim, an Associate Professor at the University of Southern California about Sidewalk City, Remapping Public Space in Ho Chi Minh City, published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press. Annette, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you also. Um, as I mentioned to you before, I, I faced an unusual challenge with Sidewalk City in that whereas I ordinarily underline and annotate when I read, I, I couldn't do that with this book because not only is it a sophisticated scholarly study, exhaustively researched and extremely well-written, but also a work of art. We'll try our best in this discussion to convey its visual contents, but listeners really do need to see this book in that spirit. Uh, in a first for this podcast, we'll be posting a number of maps from the book to the New Books website. I encourage everyone to check them out and thank the University of Chicago Press for getting us to feature them. Additionally, Annette, you've mentioned that you also have a website where listeners can visit and see some of the images. Would you like to mention the details of that? Sure. You think, um, listeners can go to slab.today, that's S-L-A-B uh, dot today, and uh, there is a project uh, site with many images and more stories. Excellent. Well, the book opens with one such map, and perhaps it's on your website, of little sidewalk symbols, as you call them, in in Ho Chi Minh City. And it sets up what follows beautifully with an eloquent caption and an arresting image. And then can you please begin the story of Sidewalk City with figure 1.1 and through it tell us a little bit about why you wrote a book on mapping or rather remapping the sidewalks of a city in southern Vietnam? Sure. On this uh, map, there's a quote by Pierre Bourdieu, which says, space is the text the body reads by traversing. And uh, it's a map of where we found what I call sidewalk symbols. There's this phenomenon on the streets and sidewalks of Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, people have made these little installations, I call them, little humble installations that signify a variety of things. And they're so easy to overlook, and yet they're so commonplace. And so what I did with my team is to go survey the system and then to map it out. And I think that's a big um, part of why I map is so that I can see better that there's so much habitual seeing and blindness that we only take in a small fraction of the phenomenon around us. So much of what we notice is what we've been socialized into notice. Um, And there's many things right in front of us or that we're stepping right on that we never even really see. So that's why I say remapping, that um, 
you try to look again and to uh, in order to see better. What were you doing in Ho Chi Minh City before you set up the team and when you started noticing these uh, cyborg symbols? Yeah, it's been a long-term engagement. I've been going to Vietnam and specifically Saigon since 1996. I had originally gone there as a graduate student, um, assisting my professor, uh, doing um, household surveys where I would knock on every third door that I found down a street and um, talk to different households. And this is pretty early on in the opening up of Vietnam's economy uh, to the world. And so um, it was an incredible experience. And so I did um, other kinds of projects about the first generation of real estate developers, the rapid urbanization that was going uh, on. And then I actually lived there for a year continuously as a doctoral student to do my own field work about real estate developers. Um, but I lived with a local household, and I would um, just my daily rhythms of living there I, I realized there's something really special, something about this city. I love living there. I feel so alive, and I don't know what it is. So, in you know, one way you could think of this book is as a love letter to the city, um, where I was trying to figure out what is so wonderful about living in this city. It's unlike other cities I've lived in. So it's a very different project from my first one. It's very visual. It's very... Um, inductive and experimental um, and it was a chance to finally bring to integrate the artist side of me with the scholar side of me which is really exciting through the map and the book uh, does that uh, tremendously well so congratulations on it but before we go further into your sidewalk city of the present day Let's set the scene a little bit. Uh, the city today known as Ho Chi Minh City began and spent much of its relatively short history as twin cities. What were those twin cities and how have the uses and meanings of public space in them changed over time? Yeah, it's really fascinating because uh, right now it's, it seems, it looks like one city and it's mapped as one city, but uh, you don't have to go very far back to realize they were actually two separate towns that were coexisting, and so there was the, um, you know, it's, uh, Ho Chi Minh City is considered a young city in Vietnam. It's only, quote, only 300 years old compared to 1,000-year-old Hanoi. It started as a little fishing village, but once the, um, uh, it was annexed, and then really it was at the French colonial Saigon town, where they try to build a mini Paris, you know, with the Opera and the Notre Dame Cathedral and uh, the big boulevards. And they're the ones who built the sidewalks. There was um, not too far away a whole uh, different neighborhood called Cholun, which is sort of the southern Chinatown with the uh, rows of shop houses, narrow streets curving towards the river, a completely different urban morphology. And But they were intentionally planned to stay apart. Uh, there was sort of a partitioning of the space and the economy and that the Chinese could be the economic engine. They're big exporters of rice through the river where the French colonial town would be the administrative 
um, and cultural um, center. And uh, there was one major road connecting them. And so um, over time, they've uh, expanded and merged and, you know, with the transitions in different regimes, it was erased and become uh, said to be one town, street names were changed. But in the minds of people, for example, my um, my father-in-law, who's actually from the um, Cholen, often refers to Saigon as if it's a separate city. And I realize there's a different cognitive map of people. And my Vietnamese friends would, you know, think differently about Cholen as well. Um, and so uh, it's a really fascinating um, history that I try to recover because it has a lot of implications because the social practices in these two areas of town are very different. How people conceive of that public space is very different. And um, so there's some difference, but what's also really interesting if you look at the history is what doesn't change. That, you know, Vietnam has gone through, gone through successive um, regimes that are very different, but this everyday practice of using sidewalk space for more than walking has been longstanding and resilient through the different regime changes. There's a 150-year-long history of this, and uh, I found it through archive images that, um, you know, each regime tries to control this space, to clear it off, to make it uh, more sanitary, to uh, uh, only allow certain kinds of behavior, but uh, it's been unstoppable. Well, one of the points you make in comparison to, to Hanoi is that Saigon uh, it was relatively was designed in a way that there were relatively few regulations and relatively little cordoning off one part of the city from another. So does that affect uh, in part some of the dynamics that you explore in the later chapters of the book in the current period? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's still regulated, but it's very different from the Chinese urban tradition of, uh, you know, controlling, uh, you know, which classes can go on which parts of the city. There's a a relative looseness in the South. You know, the Southern Vietnam was seen as the frontier, more open to the mingling of um, cultures um, and adopting and adapting. And, um, and so because of this, it shows up in um, the way that people were more free to use different parts of the street in the South relative um, to Hanoi. Well, let's uh, think about some of the implications that you're referring to as we get to uh, some of the other chapters of the book shortly. But before we return to them, you say that um, in order to make sense of Ho Chi Minh City or your sidewalk city today, you had to jerry-rig a conceptual toolkit of your own. Uh, Why did you have to do that and what did this toolkit consist of? Yeah, I, I, you know, have come from the urban planning tradition where it, which is interdisciplinary. It comes from both a physical planning design tradition of kind of architecture and urban design, but then also incorporating in the West since the 1960s, the social sciences. And uh, a lot of times in planning, it's been a, an easy marriage to, between these disciplines that they there's some scholarship that's more one or the other, but few that truly integrate both society and space. 
And so um, this work is also an effort to further integrate them more deeply, that I can't understand uh, sidewalks unless I talk to the people about what they're doing and not assume uh, my interpretation of what's going on. At the same time that to realize the physical built environment plays an important role in shaping the relationships um, that are happening. So I took some of the methods of architecture and planning of doing site surveying with uh, maps and, you know, measuring off space and the locations of things and the proximity of things. And um, meanwhile, we, we would keep going back iteratively, um, go back to the same sidewalk and then participate, do participant observation, ethnographic research to participate in the social system of the sidewalk life. Um, you know, being in the cafe, being customers, talking to people, um, and then also doing uh, about 300 interviews with street vendors as well as uh, talking to local police and uh, local neighborhood um, residents. So... It's uh, is a labor-intensive process. Um, it was very open-ended. Um, I was developing this method in the field, and we would regroup every day and try to be reflexive and be open to, again, things we might have missed, we might have overlooked, not realized, and hoping that with more pairs of eyes that um, we would be able to see better. When you refer to we, I, I presume you're talking about the research group you established called the Sidewalk Laboratory or, or SLAB for, for data collection. Can you say a bit more about what SLAB was, who it involved, how many pairs of eyes you did have, what <laughs> methods you used to gather and, and uh, interpret the data? Right. Yeah, so I brought um – a team, and so I formed a team. Um, at that time, I was a professor at MIT, and so I brought four MIT students um, and then paired them with four Vietnamese students, um, one American and one Vietnamese in each team. And so they went out um, in pairs through the city, and we did an intensive uh, fieldwork process um, and then meet every day again. And at that time, again, it was so – I had no idea uh, what we would find. It was a new kind of process for me, and we were really uh, being very reflexive. And so uh, we would visit each section of sidewalk multiple times. We tried to vary it by time of the day, morning, afternoon, evening, weekday, weekend, and uh, we would cover the si same sidewalk First, like I was saying, note-taking and observing uh, all, all the uh, kind of occupations and uses of space and who was in that space, and then go back and talk to people and survey, and then go back again. And so there's multiple times we kept visiting the same space. Um, and we, we didn't have a name at that point, but it was just growing and growing, and so we came up I guess I came up with this name SLAB, This is easy to say, and at that time it stood for Sidewalk Laboratory, and um, this is really a gateway to a whole new inquiry for me, this um, being able to see better through this spatial ethnography and critical cartography process 
Um, so now the acronym stands for Spatial Analysis Laboratory more generally, that um, my more recent projects have moved beyond the sidewalk, but this is where it was born, through the sidewalk. And one of the ways in which the group work that you mentioned in the book is by looking um, through a property rights theory lens. What is that property rights theory and how did it help you in doing this work? Yeah, um, I think property rights is the key core phenomenon that's um, being re constructed right now globally. Um, and I have to always be careful because some people misinterpret when I say property rights to mean uh, private property rights that would support uh, the market economy. And, and I mean something much more um, foundational than that. It's the, um, the way that society constructs who has the legitimacy um, to uh, Space that we have a whole system we build up of um, entitlements and liabilities of how who can control space and that could be under many different kinds of economic and political systems. But I think the core insight from the classical property rights literature is that one only has a right if the rest of society confers that right to them. That it's not some um, natural right. And so that also means there's an incredible amount of variation uh, between societies and also the possibility for reconstructing these. And that's what we're in the midst of right now, you know, with rapid urbanization for the first time in human history, we are an urban uh, humanity. And that means, um, you know, more people are living in cities than not, and how that's happened is that people have moved to the city. It comes primarily through um, migration and immigration, and that means uh, many more people with different spatial projects vying for the same space. And uh, we have to rewrite our ideas, our rules about what is this space for, who has the legitimate right to use it, uh, what kind of uses can take place? What responsibilities do you have to society for that space? Um, and what entitlements can it give you? You critique that uh, traditional literature on property rights, as you mentioned already. But uh, in addition to that, there are a couple of other bodies of literature or the themes in, in current literature that you referred to somewhat critically and interested me. One's the literature of the public sphere, the public domain. And another is the, the is emerging rights to the city literature. What were the limitations or difficulties that you encountered with those bodies of literature that you should have moved through or passed in doing this work in Ho Chi Minh City? Mm -hmm. um, well, with the right to the city, I mean, I think that that is generally what I'm talking about, but the problem has been uh, that it's so abstract and yet the material concrete control of space is the key um, uh, struggle. And so we need to have more um, concrete operational ways of thinking about this right to the city, that even if you make a constitutional change, it, it gets decimated by the practice of um, uh, 
of trying to operationalize it. And um, so that's why I incorporate um, the analysis of physical space as well as the social construction of space because both matter. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot what your first point was. But the other point was with regards to the public domain or the public sphere. Oh. So like the the Arendtian or Habermasian conceptions of public space. And again, perhaps the point there is that it's, it's abstracted notions of, of the use of space and that it emits the, the type of space that you're concerned with. Well, yeah, and again, the importance of the actual physicality and materiality of the space is because with the um, original public sphere literature in, in political science, um, it often assumed public space where these large, open spaces, the agora, the forum, and in contemporary areas, you know, the big squares, the waterfronts, where uh, people could bring their bodies and they can no longer be ignored and where um, uh, they could voice their um, criticisms and complaints, you know, protests. So you see that in things like the Occupy movements or Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring, and they are important. Um, But this book... Uh, and there have been criticisms of that literature that that idea of the or actually, you know, women and, and slaves are not allowed to be in that public space and how um, some of the important democratic movements have come from meetings in private spaces like bars and uh, uh, meeting houses. So that we need to understand this relationship between space um, and politics uh, um, more. And so this book focuses on the sidewalk, which is a very different kind of space. They're humble, everyday spaces that are narrow, that brings your body in, um, you know, brushing past another uh, on a regular basis, where we come into contact with um, other people uh, in a different kind of arrangement. And that... Um, What's special, I think, about them is that they're everyday. They're part of our everyday practice. Um, it's also important spatially how they wrap around um, buildings. And so a lot of times those building users feel a special entitlement to that uh, sidewalk, that public space in front of there. So there's a lot of contestation in this um, public space. So that it's also special in how it's networked and spread throughout. Um, and it's a significant amount of space in many cities. If you added the area, you know, square meter area, it's a lot of space, but it's one that's commonly overlooked. It's we step on it and it's very humble. If you look at it on a map, it's hard to even see it because it's so narrow. So um, it feeds in well to how you might habitually overlook this very important public space. Well, before we come to, to your maps and how the sidewalk becomes a central feature of those maps, let's return to the, the slab teams for a moment in, in the city on the sidewalks. Could you give us a bit more of a sense of what they were doing when they went out and how did you select sites and what type of engagement did they have with sidewalk users and what sort of material did they come back with which you then use to uh, assemble your preliminary ideas and then the more advanced data collection for the mapping project? 
Yeah, so there are uh, two distinct phases. So that fieldwork part is the spatial ethnography part, uh, the data collection part. And um, so these teams, these pairs would go out on the first, the first pass, they would just need to be there and walk it to get their bearings. It's a really um, actively used space in, in Vietnam. I think that's one of the biggest impressions visitors have is they're just amazed at how many people are out on the sidewalk and how many different things are going on. And yet it's, it is orderly. There's a system to it, but it's hard to take it all in. So they first had to get their bearings. And then um, they would go back with a piece of paper where we had the city planning basic building outline and um, street outline maps, and they would take notes on there, you know, draw and measure uh, what space was being used for what purpose, who was on there, what were they doing, the gender, you know, the rough ages, those kinds of things. Again, um, just observe through observation. Um, And so they would come back with these paper maps, and we, you know, originally we were tried out using more sophisticated GPS um, um, uh, devices, but they um, we found them inappropriate for that setting. One, it's so densely built, it was hard to connect to the satellite, and also it drew attention, and so paper and pencil was <laughs> the very low-tech method we used to take notes. Um, and then it was, you know, it's a very intense environment. They spend about three hours surveying, and then they would go back and then code it all into GIS um, and enter in layers of this attribute information that they had collected. And so in the beginning stages, it was very, um, we were piloting it and inductive, and so we kept being open to what kinds of um, phenomenon should we be taking notes on. And um, that was also informed by the literature. And also informed by the literature was the um, site selection. So um, we decided to survey generally two different areas of the city, one being the um, colonial part of the city that has a very special morphology, um, like I said, the French uh, town planning. And then this uh, Cholan, the, the Chinatown, with, again, a very unique morphology. Um, and, you know, there's only so much that um, we could do, and so we chose to vary it by this very different morphology. And then within the two areas, we also varied it by the different political district and ward jurisdictions because local governance we hypothesize makes a big difference in the kind of sidewalk life that is practiced. So we try to be systematic about um, what we're holding constant and what we're um, allowing to vary. Um, and so they would come back with this paper and put it into the computer, and then they would go back again and um, talk to people, um, participate in the live, be customers. And we had a series of um, uh, semi-structured interview questions that they would ask um, to the vendors, um, and then they also took lots of photos, um, which became pretty key elements to our map making in the second phase. One of the uh, features of the work that you point to in the research questions is how the sidewalks are ordered. Um, 
did the teams encounter any difficulties um, in terms of their own work in meeting with government officials or police or others who were also wondering what it was that they were doing there. <laughs> there were there other challenges or difficulties that, um, that they met with? Um, were there aspects of the work also that, that you might have done, undertaken differently, or you say surveying a city in the United States rather than in Ho Chi Minh City? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of the remarkable things about southern Vietnam, and I'm always amazed by it every time I go back, is there's just this incredible openness and kind of chattiness. People are so open to talking. So I was a little, honestly, concerned about that. Um, in the end, I decided not to, I decided that we would just all go over on tourist visas and not go through an official um, uh, venue to give us the most freedom. And these, you know, the sidewalk life is out in the open and public. Uh, but I wondered, you know, in, in my earlier, my first forays that I mentioned uh, doing the household survey back in 96, my um, partner graduate student had been detained by the police so <laughs> for not having the third piece of paper he needed to do interviews. Um, so I was a little nervous, but we actually encountered no problems, and almost um, every street vendor was happy to talk to us. I think there are maybe only three out of 300 who declined. Um, and I've also found that in the past that people are incredibly open, um, and I think that's something special because later I've um, tried to do similar kinds of methods um, in the United States, in Boston, and in Los Angeles, and people are much more reticent um, to talk, and um, there's probably needs a deeper period of um, building up relationship, but I don't know. There's something <laughs> I think special about Southern Vietnam where you can um, build a, a rapport and empathy really quickly. And I think that was one of the advantages of having my teams be a pair of both an American and a Vietnamese. It was really clear that one of them was a foreigner and um, that they were not part of any official government kind of survey. Um, and so that probably... Um, helped uh, ease people up. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was kind of our process. Well, evidently then you, you collected an abundance of data. What were some of SLAB's preliminary findings and what caught your attention and what came back from the sidewalks? Yeah, there's so many things. So we knew we had tons of material. I, I I forget the number. It's in the book. Something like, uh, you know, 6,000 people out on the sidewalk we counted doing various things. And in addition to, you know, thousands of photographs and all this GIS data. So that was the spatial ethnography part, the field work, the first phase. Then we came back and probably for the next two years, we're analyzing that data and experimenting with how to turn that data into knowledge. And that's where the critical cartography um, process took place. Um, we kept experimenting with um, how to unleash different knowledge from this data. And, you know, that's a central portion of my book, what I call the critical cartography primer, where I go through a progression of maps of generally the same place, but you see different things by changing the cartographic rules. And, um, you know, with any kind of map, you're 
choosing to show a small subset of what exists. And you have to for legibility. Um, so with every map, you are making some things apparent and other things absent. And so the challenge to us was what else could we unleash? How could we uh, get away from our cartographic traditions to unlock other kinds of knowledge? And, um, you know, when uh, we have this strong tradition of um, thinking of space, for example, as uh, being bounded by the edges of things, we care really a lot about the edge boundaries. Um, and that is that the only way to conceive of space? You know, what, what could we do to unlock Euclidean notions of space? Um, and so that was the interesting challenge for us. And um, so some of the things, I think one of the major um, areas we found that we want to uh, explore even more is space-time. So that um, if you don't pin down space as this flat area um, for all time, but to see how space changes uh, by hour, by hour, especially in the sidewalk life of Ho Chi Minh City, you see a much more fluid and socially negotiated construction of space. Um, I think, and what we found is remarkable amounts of sharing of space in Saigon, that people took turns on using this precious public space and that there was a social system around it, which includes the local police, to support that sharing, which allows um, the support of more livelihoods, which allows um, you know different kinds of uses throughout different hours of the day and evening, so you have a very vi uh, vibrant street life. So this thinking of space-time, I think, is one of the um, major things that we elaborate on. The uh, critical cartography primer is really a beautiful part of the book. In a sense, it's almost a publication in a publication. And, uh, for someone like me who needed a primer on critical cartography, it was greatly appreciated. So can you talk us through the, the steps in the primer? Because it really does, um, I think, in a, a, a wonderfully a vivid and powerful way, convey... Uh, the distinctions between uh, critical cartography and conventional cartography and uh, explore what is critical um, about the work that you do. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's um, elaborating on critical uh, cartography literature from geography, which um, is critical in that it says all maps are power projects, that uh, there's this veneer of technocracy and um, ob objectivity that we're mapping facts out there. But because of these choices that I said we make, um, we're only choosing to make certain things apparent and worthy of notice and other things not. And so I think one way to define critical cartography is mapping things that are not usually mapped that there's many other things going on that are not as privileged. And so um, I first start out with the conventional uh, city planning map that I actually got from the city planning department. And that whole system, you know, basic map, is we draw a thin black line around the edges of things, the edges of buildings, the edges of um, sidewalks, uh, and so there's a, it's a whole system of lines, and it's it's very helpful for seeing 
For example, the street patterns and the scale of the building parcels. In the one that I show, you could see the French town planning history because of these grand boulevards and the roundabout circles. But you cannot see the sidewalks, really, because um, at that scale, they're uh, so thin. But, it, you know, when you think about that, you actually can't go into most of these areas that are shown on the map, that, they, you know, they're closed off. And that when you're in the city, the only space that you can see and experience is this public space, that um, sidewalk space. So... In some ways, you could think that map is um, uh, not matching. Uh, uh, well, it's not lying to you, but some people, you know, would say you can lie with maps. That that's not uh, a view you could ever see. And so, I take that same map and I just change one cartographic rule, and I black everything out except for what is public space, um, you know, inspired by the Roman Noli maps. And then, just with that same uh, map, but with a different rule, in the second, you could um, see more clearly the sidewalk space, and you see again, the kind of spatial nature of the sidewalk, how networked and web-like and skinny it is and that it wraps around blocks. Um, but then you see that at the typical city planning map scale, uh, the phenomenon of sidewalk life um, is still not apparent because it's so much smaller. So then I zoom into a small portion of it and you see um, sort of our basic GIS maps where we adopted the convention of drawing boundaries around um, space use and um, coding it by different uh, uses by color. But this, um, you know, the question, is that how we define space? Is that what um, space is? And so with that same data, instead of drawing polygons around the edges of things, we, in the next map, put a transparent dot on top of each um, instance of data of um, some kind of space, sidewalk space being used. And so the more dots that are on top of each other, the more illuminated the space becomes. And so now public space is contingent on public use. It's being defined as um, if the public is in this space. And that leads to our um, ghost map. That's the cover page of the whole chapter, and you could see a different kind of hovering quality to that map um, that we call the ghost map, because now you're finally seeing the people in the sidewalk, um, the public, the broader public. Um, and then the next map um, goes into that section further and does the space-time analysis, where um, my assistants went up and down just around one uh, corner sidewalk uh, every hour from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. and recording what was happening on that sidewalk. And so the map, map is kind of three-dimensional, and you see the space use unfurling over the hours of the day. And we try to rehumanize the map, that all these um, notations are abstract geometries, um, which can help feed into a dehumanizing of um, how we design the public um, 
how we design our cities. And so we incorporate photographic images of this space used to um, work as a sort of legend to these abstract geometries. Um, should I pause here? <laughs> as, well, I think that, that particular image that you're referring to now is one of those which is on the, the website. But, but please uh, continue and through the remaining maps. Um, and the next one perhaps is a, is a prelude to it. Um, one of the points that you make in the, the book about this map is that some people may not think of it as a map. So, again, <laughs> uh, this is one of the things about this primer that was fascinating for me. So please continue. Yeah, so we're really um, trying to push the boundaries of what is a map. And yeah, up to this point, I think most people can see, um, accept that these things are maps. Um, the general working definition I used for a map was the visual representation of spatial relationships. Um, just to help distinguish maps from the explosion in visualizations and infographics that have um, happened in many different disciplines and sectors uh, with the new technologies. There's all kinds of um, images of the city about data, but not all of them are maps. So I'm trying to focus on maps. And so there has to be some kind of spatial relationship. And of course, there are also maps that are not visual, but they might be oral. But um, this book, you know, I think most maps are visual. That next map um, is, you know, there's been a progression in the primer coming from a plan view, a bird's eye view of the city, looking down from afar, and then starting to come closer in an aerial view, but still hovering a bit. And so in this uh, next map, the sixth map, you're down at the street level as if you were standing there. And this map is a grid photo collage, and you can see my feet um, with my red shoes in this map to, again, acknowledge the map maker and that, um, you know, this is a uh, the map maker's point of view that's um, being presented instead of some kind of one static factual truth of a situation. Um, this was a scene looking down the alley where I lived for a year. And so I knew this space pretty well. I would um, have this ritual walking in and out to go out into the city every day. And what I, uh, you know, this is part of what inspired this whole book is by walking around the city, I walked a lot. Um, you know, my neighbors here included, um, well, there's a police station right in this alley as well as the residents. And one of the residents um, was struggling economically. She was a single mom and had many kids. And so the neighborhood agreed that she could set up a cafe, sidewalk cafe in this alley. And the police allowed it as well because she was a fellow uh, neighbor and she needed to make a living. And, you know, everyone, as I recount in the history, partakes. There's a big eating in the streets culture in um, Vietnam. And so I'd have this ritual of walking down, uh, winding my way around the sidewalk cafe customers, and I saw how this cafe grew over the year. And um, But this is a map about how this space was renegotiated over a 10-year period, whereas the previous map looked at how space was negotiated over one day, hour by hour, this one was um, mapping 
how this space changed over 10 years. So I would keep going back to visit and see and, and hear about the new arrangement that was decided upon by the neighborhood. So later in 2004, um, because this area of the city was um, growing in uh, desirability and real estate value, uh, more wealthy people started moving in with cars and they wanted to drive their car down the alley. So um, they moved the vendors out and they started vending out on the sidewalk of the main street. And what was so interesting is that three vendors were next to each, three groups of vendors were next to each other and they parceled out space based on the sidewalk tiles. So they said, okay, the couple who sells noodles gets two tiles. The woman um, selling drinks gets one tile, and then the candy seller gets half a tile. And um, But then they would be flexible about it and share the plastic cafe tables and chairs. And I thought it was so interesting that they um, could come to an, an agreement like that. And then they were cleared again when I came back in 2010 because the city was um, more thoroughly enforcing sidewalk clearance. And because they couldn't afford... Um, real estate, there was this little corner room whose walls could open, and so they would rent maybe two hours of that space, and so three different groups of vendors would take turns in that space. So um, this is a very wordy explanation <laughs> of this map, um, but um, what we've done now is to make this um, a cinematic map where um, this whole process unfolds these tiles start to flip and change so you can see the different configurations and you hear the sounds of the street. And that's what's on the website that um, people can go visit. And this one was a real, I think, gateway to uh, my uh, line of work now that we're really pushing the map beyond Euclidean space to incorporate things like time as well as um, sound and senses. And this map, imposed a grid structure on it to convey how, you know, we impose a social system and reconstruct um, this space. Um, and visually, it was really inspired by David Hockney's photo collages um, that uh, knit together images that don't quite meet up exactly, which um, activates the image. Well, um we, we may be running short on time to get through all of the remainder of the primer. We can uh, leave it to listeners to take a look for themselves. But I do want to point out that the last uh, item in the primer is deliberately not map. So in your efforts to push the boundaries of the map, why is it that the primer ends with uh, an item which isn't a map at all? I, I mean, I think, you know, when you're... Um in this case, trying to explain what is a map and what could be a map and uh, really pushing the boundaries, then I think it was helpful to say what is not a map. And what I showed was um, a more kind of artistic collage that I made, and there's cartographic lines in it. Um, and you see a lot of that. There's, I think, such a <laughs> interest I see amongst artists, you know, wonderful artists, um, using map-like images and I think the urban is fascinating lots of people probably because we are an urban humanity now but um, 
it's not quite a map in that it's not um, talking about, it's not showing spatial relationships. There's maybe spatial concepts or ideas, but um, it's not um, connecting um, different elements within um, space. So that's why I put it in. Right. Well, lest uh, listeners think that uh, the, the book is really an exercise in experimentation, in the last substantive chapter in the book, you turn to ask how your research can be used to actively intervene in the city, how the sidewalks of Ho Chi Minh City might be reimagined and a new paradigm introduced. And you make a specific proposal to the city government, which you describe as a subversive sidewalk strategy. So what was the proposal specifically and how did the government agencies concerned and also the public respond? That was yeah, really fascinating. Um, I proposed... There were a series of meetings, and ultimately, in short, I proposed a, a sidewalk plan, um, a pedestrian tourist path that would go through these two areas of town, Saigon and Cholen. And it was subversive in that I was, you know, I'm not really interested in tourism planning, but I knew that one of the rationales for sidewalk clearance and getting rid of the sidewalk life was the assumption that this is what international tourists like, that they want a sanitary, cleaned up, um, built environment. You know, I heard allusions to Singapore and that um, what was in the sidewalks of the city, they thought of as backwards and not world-class. They want to be a world-class city. So I um, collected all these... um, uh, data about the tourists who had come to uh, Ho Chi Minh City from the major largest tourist groups in their own language, so in Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and um, French and English, and to show, uh, and, you know, to see what they talked about, what they liked and what they didn't like. And the sidewalk life was a large percentage of um, what they mentioned and, you know, um, so I think that was a new approach for the city. And so I used that as the basis for, instead of clearing the sidewalk, legitimating the sidewalk life, that this is actually will be helpful for the global tourism uh, growth Plan, which is one of their um, target economic sectors. And um, so I presented uh, how, you know, they could promote this uh, sidewalk path through more parts of the city to encourage a longer stay, you know, one more hotel night in the city um, is the way um, I was explaining it. And I showed many um, images of how this would work and in which I incorporated how tourists and sidewalk vendors can um, happily coexist. And um, the visualization of this, um, well, so I should say I was really surprised that this um, proposal was approved by the local people's committee, um, the city government, very quickly, and all the departments of transportation and um, 
tourism and uh, planning fully supported this. And so it was approved and it was supposed to be a pilot project, but for um, other reasons um, was eventually uh, uh, stalled. But I think um, what happened from this, there are two things that were so significant and meaningful to me. One is that um, when I made this presentation and showed them these images, there were senior city planning officials who were really taken aback. And they, you know, they had already been thinking about sidewalk plans, and they said, um, I never realized we were planning through communities. Let's go out and enjoy the sidewalk life right now. And it was really remarkable to me because, you know, they were born and raised in the city. They have been looking at maps of the city all their professional life, but they hadn't seen these aspects. And so that, I think, showed to me the potential power of visualization um, and how our conventions of visualization, you know, theirs was more of an architectural engineering type convention, could actually mask other kinds of phenomenon and knowledge and further making them absent in the consideration. And then the second thing we did with all these maps was to make a public exhibition in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in 2014. And at that time, the whole sidewalk clearance was a kind of politically sensitive topic. There had been a, a kind of bloody confrontation between the police and vendors at one point and videotaped and it went viral, and which is very unusual in Vietnam. And um, that's when I came into town wanting to do an exhibit. And it was um, a really um, interesting experience. You know, you have to, it's like kind of tacit censorship. You, I couldn't use the word sidewalk. I had couldn't show maps that look like maps. But in the end, we did install the exhibition with my cinematic maps and photographs. And uh, that exhibit um, was an occasion for which to have a public discussion. It um, was covered on the front page of the largest newspaper in Vietnam. There were two documentaries made about it, one on national TV, their radio, TV, um, news. So I, I think um, it was because there was a social desire to discuss this issue, given that it was such a hot topic. And um, I was bringing in a different narrative with this um, work. That uh, to show that there might be a value to the sidewalk life. And that was um, an interesting uh, point for the public to discuss at that point in time. And I should add that for anyone who picks up a, a copy of the book, there's a bonus that the maps of the proposed walking paths are reproduced in Chapter 6. So if you <laughs> have from and you're in Ho Chi Minh City right now, then yeah. go and take a walk. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, and then you've already mentioned that your current work is moving beyond the sidewalk. Would you like to say something about it and what we can look forward to from you next? Sure. So um, I've just wrapped up a project where I map the roughly one million people living underground in Beijing. There's a whole subterranean city, and I'm realizing that that might be a regular feature of urbanization. For example, in New York, uh, is common for immigrants to be living in basements. So that's been, again, a ubiquitous but overlooked phenomenon that can be helped through visualization and mapping. 
And then my current project is in Los Angeles where I'm remapping ethnicity and spatial practices um, here in Los Angeles. Well, I'm sure that our conversation has provoked uh, listeners to, to want to take a look at your work in Ho, Ho Chi Minh City and also uh, the work that you'll be doing presently and in coming years in other cities around the world. Um, uh, Annette, Mia Kim, thank you very much for, for speaking with me today about Sidewalk City remapping public space in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening and look forward to having you join me again for another meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you have time, you can check out one of the other network podcasts like New Books in Geography or New Books in Urban Studies. Hey,